Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Steve Hamill, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sandra Mullen, Senior Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication. Vital Talks is a project of Vital Strategies, a global public health organization that is seeking to reimagine public health towards a world where everyone is protected by an equitable and effective public health system. This year, we want to bring you along on an in-depth journey, starting with a mini-series featuring people who are daring to reimagine and do public health differently. If you would like to learn how innovators are tackling the world's biggest health problems, please hit that subscribe button and follow the stories that are changing our world for the better. This year, we are also looking for sponsors to support our Vital Talk series. If you are an organization or individual interested in supporting thoughtful discussions around advances in public health, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org to learn more about sponsorship. Sandy, we can get into it. I'm so excited about today's episode examining different perspectives on health equity. But before we begin, I thought we might briefly discuss our approach to the podcast this year. Uh, as you know, we've decided to dig into the topic of reimagining public health, and we're interviewing people and organizations on the cutting edge. And I feel like this is a really important moment for these kinds of stories to be brought to light because the last years have made it obvious that public health needs change. We have these enormous pressures, including the kinds of flaws and cracks revealed by COVID, inequity, which we'll talk about today, the need for larger movement towards racial equity, and rapid commercialization and globalization, all these forces and I'm curious to hear what you think or hope we might get out of Vital Talks this year. And, and if you had a prediction, where might we be in six months of learning after we've spoken to all these different experts? Yeah, it's first of all, I'm so glad we're doing this. It's great to be doing this with you, Steve. And I feel really honored to have so many distinguished guests chiming in on this issue, which, you know, one thing I've really come to realize is that there is no one way that people think about health equity. And it really has, I think, been good. There are so many different strands that people add to the conversation. And part of it is based on their lived experience. Part of it is based on their academic study. Part of it is based on just waking up to realizing that we are ourselves participating in uh, a kind of colonially held up global health system that has so many inequities at the base and root of what is causing so many of the public health distresses that we end up uh, addressing, and certainly the healthcare uh, inequities that we end up seeing in the clinical care sector. So I, what I really loved about all of these uh, perspectives is that they sort of rounded out a, um, you know, a broad way of thinking about uh, health inequity and bringing uh, so many different, really smart people into this conversation is what I hope that we will continue to do with Vital Talks in the in the coming year and with, with other podcasts, because I can think of no subject that's more uh, important to all of the major public health crises of our time, including the climate, uh, the climate crisis and the intersection between climate and health. 
that that really resonates with me. It's this overarching, touches everything topic. Um, and I'm so glad we have these different perspectives to listen to and over two different episodes. And I'm hoping we can touch base briefly at the end of this first half hour on some first impressions and we'll debrief more fully at the end of episode two. Does that work for you? That sounds great, Steve. Let's go. Okay, let's give a listen. My name is Nina Prasad. I'm a public health physician and I lead the food policy program at Bloomberg Philanthropies. Hi, Nina. It's great to have you on. Bloomberg Philanthropies is one of the world's leading funders of philanthropic world around public health, including Vital Strategies' own work on food policy. And I'm wondering, from your perspective of a funder working to run this program a bit differently, what are you hoping for in 2023 and beyond when it comes to advancing health? Steve, thank you for the question. And um, as you've suggested, I spend a lot of time thinking about food and how to make our diets healthier. And, you know, equity within the food space, to me, really boils down to um, everyone has a right to access healthy, affordable foods and um, culturally appropriate foods is the other piece of that. And more and more, as we look at this um, climate crisis that's becoming more and more urgent, our diets should be compatible with planetary health as well. So that's really what sort of equity within food and diets looks like to me. Um, but it's it, it's more than what we buy at the grocery store. It's more than what we decide to cook for dinner that night. We recognize that we work in a food system. And that is really a recognition of all the people and processes involved in the entire chain of getting food on our plate. So it starts with, you know, who is growing our food to who is, um, you know, distributing our food to who is selling it in the retail space to who is preparing it. Um, and so it's, it's so much more than what, what we're choosing to buy at the store or, or prepare for dinner that night. So when you think about, you know, food in this way as part of a large chain, it forces you to think about who are the farmers growing our food? Who are the agricultural workers who are, you know, making food available for us? Um, who has land access? You know, who has been denied land access? Um, it makes you think about labor rights and, you know, is the person at the grocery store getting a, a fair wage. So it's it's so much bigger than, than just what we're actually putting in our mouths. And, you know, one element that we really think about is moving away from the corporate capture of our diets. So, you know, more and more our diets are ultra processed. They look less and less like real food, food that our grandmothers and great grandmothers would recognize as food. Um, and these foods are manufactured to be convenient, hyper palatable, delicious. You can't put them down. And so there's this tension between profit and what is good for us. And there shouldn't be this tension. Um, and so, you know, we see the corporatization of our diets in many, many ways. It can be the commodification of seeds. 
It can be where products are placed. You know, we go into a grocery store thinking it's all random and fair play, but it's not. You know, manufacturers pay to have their products placed in certain parts of the store where we're more likely to notice them and pick them up. Um, and it also, you know, looks like aggressive marketing practices, um, marketing targeted to children. And, you know, certainly in this country, in the U.S., there's been a lot of attention to disparities in marketing and, and black children and children of color are much more likely to see ads for unhealthy foods than white children are. Um, and so I think what I'm getting at here is equity is important, but this is actually much bigger than equity, and it's about food justice. And um, when I think about, you know, what role do I play um, in bringing about food justice, it, it comes down to three things for me. The first is recognizing and correcting power imbalances. Um, you know, I, I'm aware that as a, a funder in the so-called Global North, that comes with a lot of power and I have to check myself and say, okay, you know, who, who, who should have power in this space and to try to equalize it as much as I can. Inherent in that is my second, the second thing I'm really aware of, which is who are we listening to? And I believe more and more, and, and I'm really trying to practice this, is the people who are most impacted by these challenges we're trying to address are best placed to offer solutions. So we need to trust in our community-based partners. Um, they have creative, brilliant, innovative solutions that make sense for their context and their lives. And then finally, um, you know, this is, our lives aren't siloed. And so this is really much more than, than just thinking about food justice. We should be banding together with labor justice groups and environmental justice groups and reproductive rights groups and so on and so forth. Um, so I'll be, I'll be um, starting 2023, um, you know, continuing to interrogate myself and, you know, and, and really look at what role do I play in getting us closer to food justice. That, that was really powerful that the way you painted a, a picture of this work as, you know, a web that touches every aspect of our lives um, and almost every aspect of every other lives, right? It's this fundamental human activity of creating food and, and safety through, you know, nutrition and food. What's something that you think we might see in the next few years? Like paint a picture of what, what might one concrete step of progress look like? Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is obviously so much necessary attention on the climate crisis. And I have moments where I think we should all be working on this because it is a threat to our very existence. Um, but you know what? Working in food is actually working on climate related issues if we're conscious of it. And at the last climate conference um, in Egypt, there was more attention, probably the most attention we've seen on food and the role of food industry. Um, and so I do imagine that over the next few years, it's already happening, but it's going to accelerate where we see this greater convergence between the food justice movement and the environmental justice movement, where we recognize that, you know, our goals are actually the same. Um, producing healthy food to preserve and protect our health 
also preserves and protects the health of our planet. And so our, our, I think we have really common goals and I'm starting to see those connections coming together. And I, I, I'm really optimistic that there's going to be um, much more deliberate and intentional attention to this. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Great. And you, you touched on the inherent power differential um, in both, you know, philanthropic setting, but also I would argue in bilateral settings uh, where, you know, you often have, quote unquote, global north donating or giving to global south. I'm just curious if you've thought or heard about, you know, are there other paradigms for supporting progress that have equity at their center or other approaches um, you know, to, to, to supporting progress in, in countries that have um, fewer resources, but but these huge problems to address? Mm-hmm. That's a big question, um, you know, and I won't get sidetracked talking about reparations and, you know, trying to correct all of our historical wrongs, because I do think that's absolutely essential here as far as just a recognition of historical wrongs as a way to sort of heal and move forward. I I think, Steve, for me, it just comes back to, you know, who are we listening to? And are we as funders, you know, really willing to genuinely listen and, and, and quite frankly, take risks? You know, the solutions offered may not make sense to us based on where we sit or based on, you know, the evidence that we understand it. And that's a whole other issue is, you know, Mm -hmm. whose evidence matters, whose knowledge matters. Um, And so I think if we can get closer to really, um, you know, listening to who has been made most vulnerable by, you know, these various structural factors and, and letting go and trusting people to adopt and implement the solutions that they know works, I, I, I think that's going to be such a meaningful first step. And I, I do think we're heading in that direction. Yeah. And, and you touched on my next question already, which is, um, you know, public health is, is a practice that's set on, you know, long standing precedents and evidence and this very, you know, uh, you know, straightforward way of looking at things and, you know, developing new approaches and upending some of the old ones really requires a lot of commitment, including to be willing to try things that fail um, or, or, or succeed differently. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you think we can persuade, convince, commit to making equity at the center of public health and remain urgent in ways that challenge us to, you know, sometimes fail. Mm-hmm. How can how can we persuade our field to to take an even even bigger jump in this direction? Yeah, I I wish I had the answer to that. I agree with you. There is often you learn more from failing, you know, than than not. Um and so we do have to get more comfortable with this notion of failure. I might characterize it a little differently though, you know, when there isn't a playbook or an evidence base, which is the case in the food policy world. um, It's, you know, taking your best guesses, your your evidence-based guesses, trying it out, studying it, and being really open to the idea from the outset that there are going to be unanticipated unanticipated consequences and being open to 
understanding what those are in real time and correcting them in real time. Nina Prasad, thank you so much for taking a few moments today to unveil another perspective on um, health equity in 2023 and beyond. Thank you, Steve. I'm Keisha Harris, and I'm president of Keisha Harris and Associates, based here in Birmingham, Alabama. Hi, Keisha. Welcome to the Vital Talks podcast. Your firm advises government, corporations, and philanthropy, including advising on the disbursement of more than $300 billion in philanthropic assets. And at the core of your consulting work is a commitment to racial equity and advancing the leadership of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. You've built a successful career around advancing equity across multiple types of organizations. So we're curious, what are you hoping to see in 2023 and beyond when it comes to advancing health equity? What I think the greatest opportunity is for 2023 is the same as this country's great opportunity always has been, which is to be more equitable. And equity to me means ownership. So how do we create spaces where um, populations and categories of people who are customarily not at the table and oftentimes on the menu, um, how do we shift that dynamic? How do we create the space and opportunities and also uh, a real commitment to ownership over decision making? To me, what that looks like is having more black and brown people in those rooms in key decision making roles. And the other thing that it looks like to me also is a significant shift in resources that people not only come into the room, but they also have um, the money, they have the support systems, they have uh, the networks and that the enabling conditions are set for black and brown and indigenous people to lead in the decision-making related to health equity and health outcomes. So it sounds like the picture you're painting to me, one thing we may observe as, you know, this work moves forward is literally more black, brown, and indigenous people in positions of power, decision-making roles. Are there other things you you think, other markers of progress that, that you'd like to call out? Well, I I think one of my philosophies about what's going on demographically in this country is that 2030 is now. And so we've all heard the numbers for a number of a few decades. When I was in uh, graduate school in my doctoral studies, there was all of this clamor about what's going to happen when the population in the United States shifts and when white people are not in a significant majority, what will that look like? And so a lot of the tensions and that we're seeing happening in the world have to do with that shift. Uh, when I think about outcomes, I think it's first setting those enabling conditions so that we can see a significant uh, change or significant changes in health outcomes. And some of that will look like differences in the measurements that we do related to the social determinants of health. And so we'd see uh, higher rates of educational attainment. We'd see higher income, um, le- a lower income disparity between Black, Brown, and Indigenous people and white people. We would see more opportunities, as I mentioned before, to leadership because I think programming will look different. And as programming looks different and is more resonant and actually aligns with the lived experiences of, of populations, folks who come from populations like myself, um, the more that we have a 
role in making those decisions. It doesn't mean that it will be flawless, but I think the better chance that we'll at us getting better health outcomes. And the final thing I would say is I've been reading a lot about the cumulative impacts of stress and racialized trauma. And so how do we create more spaciousness for that type of leadership, not just bringing people on board um, and but really creating the opportunity that they can bring forth their best work. There was a quote that I heard recently that says that people are recruiting for diversity, but onboarding for assimilation. And so if we can get people, get organizations to not literally have people come in as black, brown, or indigenous and be whitewashed, but really to let them be their most authentic work selves and do their best work, um, we'll see a significant shift in health outcomes and health disparities. I love that. You know, one of the a number of our speakers have been talking about the last three years as, you know, a, a period where we've created this momentum around equity across a number of areas, but within the health field. And I'm wondering, you know, you're an expert at getting corporations, philanthropies, governments to look at, to think about doing things differently so so that we make sure that equity can become at the core of our activities and not just kind of tacked on to longstanding priorities. What would you advise people in the public health profession? How can we make sure that equity remains urgent and and at the center of our work? You know, one of the things I would advise us to do is to demystify this notion of urgency and to think about it in the context of time sensitivity. Because when just that slight tweak in framing um, tends to give people the time and the permission to set those conditions in ways that you can have more sustainable and predictable results, Oftentimes, uh, when we are making decisions, uh, and when I say we, when decisions are made in the in the public um, marketplace, if you will, and they are intended to correct for harm, whether it be a you know short term disaster or whether it be longstanding issues, when it comes to equity and especially in health, we saw it with COVID. There's a there was a some real needs to for people to get like on board and really. Um, move quickly. But when when I hear the word urgency, I oftentimes get like little hair standing up on the back of my neck because it is both the word itself that has its own type of power. It's saying that you're already behind, but it also seems to create these enabling conditions that say, why don't we, there are certain things that we can't do. There's certain things that we must do now, and there's not enough deliberation and time put into getting the right voices um, at the table and people contributing to in ways that are sustainable. So it's like, well, we have to just work with who's here. And if we only go with who's here, then we're going to be replicating the, the same problems with the old power structure. And so there's some work that we've been doing, for instance, with the EPA um, and their environmental justice um portfolio, which recently got a $3 billion uh, boost in terms of its budget. And one of the things that was really important for them, even as they're trying to get this money out expeditiously, is that the voices of stakeholders, people on the ground, having the lived experience are included in the process. And so what that means is slowing down to speed up. I, you know, I think in our brief work together, you taught us that, that when urgency becomes a you know, kind of a, a, like when the real meaning is speed and speed is, is really like get working fast, that, that, that can become a real 
fulcrum for inequity, right? Who are you leaving out for the sake of moving with whoever's at the table? So thank you for highlighting that. Um, I just want to end on a personal question, which is, you know, you've been working in this field for a long time. As I said, there's been this increase in momentum recently, but there have been ebbs and flows in this field. And where do you find your energy to keep going? How do you recharge and, and keep at this work every day? Well, you know, Stephen, I started doing this work before I was born about 200 years ago. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I sometimes feel <laughs> the weight of it feels like it's like, gosh, you know, are we there yet? Like my daughter um, is in a, another, uh, it works for the Senate and she's an ad committee staffer. And we were talking about what the landscape has looked like um, for us because I started my work in health and food systems. And I was sharing with her like, oh, these were some of the things that we started talking about when you were in your, you know, in elementary school and I was, you know, just really getting my foot wet. And she was like, wait a minute, we're talking about the same issues. And I was like, yeah, we are talking about the same issues. And I think we both felt fatigued because we realized that ultimately change is uh, a stepwise process. And so giving ourselves permission to be very thoughtful and intentional and to not feel this let things like urgency and one-way thinking and the right to comfort, which are some of those habits of white supremacy culture, we it is our work and our, our sacred responsibility to not let that overwhelm us. And I think also it's important to think about the power of relationships, to be very authentic in those relationships. I think that is probably the best form of self-care for me is that, yes, I'm, I'm going to be in this work. I'm going to be present for what I've committed to do. Um, and while I'm in this work to really think about relationship before a task and what that means ultimately is to take those pauses and to appreciate and celebrate when things are going well and to say, hey, I think we need to pause and think about how we are connecting with each other differently. And then I think also this, this whole notion of grind culture has to be interrogated and dismantled. I recently read um, Trisha Hersey's Rest is Resistance, and I absolutely love the core of what she is promoting through her NAP ministry. And so I think each of us has a responsibility and opportunity to think about how do we disengage ourselves from becoming a mechanized contrib contributor to um, this dismantlement of white supremacy culture and all of its cousins, all of the isms. Um, I think we need to really take time to be present for ourselves. This did not happen overnight and we will not solve it. Uh, we will not solve this in uh, you know, the next 10 years. We will not solve this in the next 15 years. We're talking about undoing literally 400 years of systematic, thoughtful and intentional ways of interacting with each other and prioritizing de and deprioritizing other people's lives. Keisha Harris, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. Uh, we, I could, I could just go on. I wish we had an hour just for you, but I really value the insights you bring to the table as always. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for this opportunity, and I wish you well. My name is Pedro de Paula, and I'm the country director for the Vital Strategies Brazil office. 
Hi, Pedro. Uh, I know you're on the Vital Strategies leadership team, and you also lead our Brazil office. And our portfolio there has included some groundbreaking work like mining health data to expose a crisis of violence against women or using digital and social media data sources to predict COVID outbreaks well in advance of official sources and demonstrating the highly disparate impact on Black and Indigenous populations. So from where you sit, what are you hoping for in 2023 and beyond when it comes to advancing health equity? Well, that's a great question because we are in a very uh, crucial moment in Brazil. We just had national elections and we're just coming out of a very extreme uh, right conservative government that has downplayed the role of public health and the role of the public sector provided health services. And uh, it has specifically reduced in more than 70% the budget for gender-based violence uh, within the public health system. And it has downplayed also the decade-long policy that we have to address the inequities for uh, towards the, the black and brown populations in Brazil. So we're in a moment that we expect that these policies, that these efforts to reduce inequities in, in health, uh, be they social, socioeconomic, gender, or racial, uh, or the connection of them, because it's always intersectional, uh, they will be resumed, they will be strengthened, and we'll be able to use public health as a crucial tool for fighting inequities and inequalities in Brazil. It's great to hear about that positive, this is a positive transformational moment, um, potentially. And one of our former panelists shared with a different perspective, shared that kind of, she felt the the train had left the station in terms of a global movement towards equity and public health. And I'm wondering if that rings true in Brazil, you know, what does that look like? Is there, you know, momentum that's connected to a global trend or is there a kind of uniquely Brazilian flavor to health equity efforts? I think that some issues uh, we, we won't go back Although some we have uh, we have regressed a lot, so uh, as as you well know in the in the U.S. and likely in Brazil, we have uh, had some important backlashes and uh, and reduction of rights in in terms of reproductive rights. And uh, however, in terms of gender-based violence, for instance, I think we are on a on a good trend. I think we are we're seeing more people talking about it. We're seeing more people understanding the role of different areas of policy to hinder this uh, these uh, types of violence and injuries. So I think it's mixed, but I think Brazil is following that trend as well. Um, especially racial inequities and how we we address them and how we talk about them and how they're more visible, although they're still uh, very present in our unfortunately, very present in our lives. And, and I'm curious about, I mean, I know that equity work is always very challenging and it, it kind of demands that we reimagine some of the things that we've done before, the work that's become before, which is complicated. There's a lot of barriers. And, you know, you talked about this emerging issue of, of, of gender-based domestic violence and other equity issues. How do you think public health as a field can keep the urgency behind equity and make sure that equity is always, you know, core to our goals and isn't siloed as its own kind of, you know, own pro project or own program. I think that if we are consistent in the use of data and understanding groups that are 
bearing the, the burden, uh, the, the inequitable burden of some diseases and of some injuries will be uh, pushed to addressing those issues. So uh, if we are very strong on data use and communicating this data uh, and understanding the, the, the particularities of, of data sets and how we address those issues with the population, I think that's, that's how we keep public health and, and this entire ecosystem focus on inequities because they 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 shout out to you uh, if you if you look at the data with the right angle if you if you're looking at it, it it's impossible not to say uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples of what we've been doing in Brazil in terms of gender-based violence uh, women subject to gender-based violence or to domestic violence have been uh, have died prematurely five times more than other women who are not subject to these violences. And they have died of all causes, not only causes related to violence. So they are dying of NCDs and other stuff. So uh, it, it's it's so flagrant. You, you can't avoid looking at it if you have this data at hand. Uh, when you when you see that the, the, the black and brown population in Brazil uh, had an excess mortality of 60% more than the non-black and brown populations in Brazil during the first year of, of the of the pandemic, uh, it, you can't do anything about it. You gotta address it. So that's I, I think that's that's the, the, the starting point. You, you gotta have a good data systems. You gotta look consistently at the data, and you gotta communicate it well so that people understand the role of public health in addressing those inequities. And I'd like to ask you finish with a personal question which is you know as you said earlier brazil's through been through a difficult few years in fact a few years ago you you and others put out a video urging the international community to pressure national government to attend to covid more urgently to invest in public health infrastructure and things may be changing now but what is it that saw you through that challenging and your team through that challenging period you know what keeps you getting into the office each day despite some of these really difficult moments? Well, I think the level of impact that we have working with public health is, is quite uh, motivating, is quite uh, important. And when the need is great, uh, I think we were even uh, more motivated to, to do our work and to help whoever we can uh, in developing policy, in developing solutions for making people's lives better. So I think that that was actually uh, very, uh, very straightforward for us. Uh, governments needed us when they didn't have uh, everyone they, they used to have. Pedro, I want to thank you for taking a few moments to add your perspective to uh, and your unique perspective to our episode on uh, public health and health equity in 2023 and beyond. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. Sandy, after listening to Nina, Keisha, and Pedro, I'm curious to hear what is really sticking out for you at this moment. Well, what sticks out for me is listening to, uh, you know, they all said somewhat different things. And I guess I appreciated the idea that a donor of of significance in in the form of uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies would be so self-aware of their position in the global north supporting the global south. And I I appreciated that self-awareness and the importance of supporting indigenous solutions, uh, which I think has been an evolution. 
Uh, and Keisha, as always, um, brings out so many important points around the assumptions that are made that are embedded by white supremacy culture. And what I really think is intriguing is the idea that programming, public health programming, could be different. And I think we're really a long way from really creating the pathway to that. And, and I'm something that I want to keep thinking about as I think about um, the, the many things that she said and what I think needs to be done. And, and, and you know, the importance of data, I think, really came out in, in a few of these uh, conversations and appreciated very much how gender violence, for example, as Pedro said, really uh, becomes so obviously a problem when you look to the data. Those, those are so those are points. my I'm, thoughts, Steve. What did you think? Well, personally, I love the notion of risk-taking that surfaced here and the kind of hand-in-hand -hand notion that we can reframe failure as one step towards learning and towards doing better. I, I know that I'm feeling that our field is frozen in some ways by these proven methods that work, but they've also been proven to leave out some groups or communities and they cause these great disparities. And there may be reluctance to try new things, but that's what's required to get greater health equity moments. So I love hearing that energy to re-examine, to be brave and bold, and to reframe failure as one step towards, you know, making a public health uh, really touch everybody, all communities. Um, thanks for those quick reactions. Um, we'll finish up now so that we can move on to our second set of interviews and listen for those same, to see if we hear those same threads in the, in the second set of interviews. Listeners, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast service. Also visit us at vitalstrategies.org and subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can sign up for news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests like NCD prevention, urban health, environmental health, health equity, and much more. If you have feedback or thoughts, feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill and Sandy Mullen signing off for the Vital Talks podcast. <laughs>